Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I am Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. And I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Gaia Vince, who is a science journalist and author. Her most recent book is Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. And that's the main topic of our conversation today. And in this book, she draws together the history of human migration, demographic change, particularly uh, how that differs between industrialized and developing countries, and how climate change is expected to catalyze greater international migration from low latitudes near the equator to higher latitudes. And I think the general message of this book is that this acceleration of international migration is something that, if managed properly, can provide some unexpected net benefits. Yeah, we do bring up some of the challenges that migration has faced in in recent history. The um... Brexit issue in the UK, some of the politics in Europe and America have have gone quite anti-immigrant. So we sort of challenge her a little on, you know, how likely this this large shift, this large migration is to go down well politically. But yeah, she puts forward a strong case that, you know, migration has many benefits. And given this demographic situation the developing world is facing, it might be, while radical, a potential solution to, to two of the big challenges we face. Without further delay, Gaia Vince. Today, we are joined by Guy Vince. Uh, Guy Vince is an award-winning science journalist, author, broadcaster, and speaker. She traveled two and a half years to write Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet, which won the Royal Society Winton Prize for science books. Vince's second book was Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time, which describes how culture enabled humans to become the most successful species on Earth. Her new book is Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. It describes how we can plan for and manage this unavoidable climate migration while we restore the planet to a fully habitable state, and it's a topic of our conversation today. So welcome to the show, Guy. Thanks, thanks. Good to be here. So we always like to start by asking a little bit about your background. So how did you end up becoming a science journalist? Well, I studied science through university, and uh, at the same time, I did quite a lot of writing because I was um, interested in writing and journalism. And I kept the two of them going pretty much all the way through. And then when I finished, um, I went to um, Australia and worked as a science journalist for a bit. Then I came back and did an engineering master's because I thought I wanted to do that. And then I realized I didn't. I wanted to be a writer. So I kind of kept both of them going. Gaia, a week ago from this recording, and it might be about a month ago from the time we broadcast this episode, your new book, Nomad Century was published. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you ask, what you investigate, and uh, what your conclusions are? Yeah, so um, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval, is about what we face over the coming decades. We've talked a lot about the need for mitigation. Most people understand now we need to cut our carbon emissions. We are also starting to talk about adaptation, the idea that we now live in a completely different world and we need to adapt all aspects, all facets of the way we live and how we produce everything for this new world. What no one seems to be talking about is the large number of places and the large number of people who live there for whom there is going to be no way to adapt to this much hotter world. Those people will have to move. And so this really is my way of looking ahead at how we manage that. And it's first of all calling for management. It's really, it's a sort of manifesto for waking up, looking head on at the reality of what we face and coming up with a pragmatic plan for the next coming decades. So where people will move to, how we will make that work and how we will in the meantime, restore our planet absolutely transforming everything to make it environmentally and socially sustainable. Um, I don't expect everyone to agree with all my conclusions and all my solutions, but 
I really wrote it because I want to start a conversation around this because I don't think it's being talked about and certainly not talked about at the levels it needs to be. Your new book, Nomad Century, in my eyes, brings together two primary themes. And one of these themes is that climate change is might be quite severe. And you focus on a possible higher end scenario of three to four degrees warming in which significant portions of low latitude areas, so closer to the equator, will become less inhabitable or even uninhabitable entirely. And I think our, our listeners are should be fairly familiar with uh, the risks of climate change. So I want to go ahead and start at least with the migration side uh, or theme of your book. And so you spend a couple of chapters early on describing the, the history of human migration and uh, some of the various effects it's had on culture. And you come out at a relatively favorable endpoint for migration. Can you say a bit about what the effects uh, have been of, of recent international migration on societies and economies? Basically, we're facing a demographic shortage, um, a crisis in uh, many countries, actually, but particularly in Northern Hemisphere countries where we're not having enough babies to look after our aging population. This is going to become increasingly um, a big issue over the coming decades. And some countries are sort of getting to grips with that in different ways. So Canada is planning on tripling its population over the coming decades. Germany took in uh, famously um, more than a million Syrian refugees during the crisis, uh, which was, I guess, nearly 10 years ago now. Um, it started 2015. And that's actually very useful to replace a lot of its Turkish immigrants who had started to go back to Turkey. And they are now also benefiting from Ukrainian refugees. Migrants from various places actually are of net benefit if it's managed well, net benefit to the economies that they land in because they enlarge the economy, they provide more jobs and they provide more um, economic demand as well because they want to use services, use products and so on. So if it's managed well, migration can actually be a huge benefit to countries. Most migrants are young working aged people who are looking for work. So they tend to go where the work is and where the work is, is where there's a vacancy for somebody to do that work. So, you know, it's not a surprise, I guess, that um, migrants increase the economy where they go. What are some of the challenges that international migration poses that in your eyes are more serious and need greater attention from policymakers? Well, at the moment, I don't think anyone is seriously waking up to the fact that large areas of the planet are going to become unlivable, increasingly unlivable. Already, there are areas that are pretty much unlivable. I mean, while we're talking, there's, you know, one third of Pakistan is underwater, uh, which has displaced millions of people. This is going to happen increasingly, increasingly more frequently, um, and it's going to affect more and more people around the, uh, around the globe. And nobody is making a plan to manage this. At the moment, what we do is put hurdles in the way of migrants. You know, they're treated as a security issue. They're quite often locked up in detention centres. They're not allowed to join the formal economy to get jobs, to receive benefits. Even their children aren't necessarily educated. It's, it's pretty horrific. And so what happens is the migrants develop a black market, obviously a black market economy just to survive. And that is then in competition with the formal market. Um, and you don't want that. What you want is um, people to actually be included. And that inclusivity means that the economy is then widened and becomes much more functional. Um, and it's, you know, everybody's needs are aligned because migrants, just as the native population want a strong, functioning, resilient economy. They want healthcare systems that work, education systems that are innovative and creative, world-class universities. They, we, you know, everybody wants the same things. And if they become included and become citizens and become, you know, feel themselves part of this grand project, then everybody is working towards the same ends. Your book works through some other common criticisms of increased or larger scale international migration. And I'd like to throw a, a couple of them your way and get your sense of that with the disclaimer, of course, that I myself am an, uh, I am an international immigrant, a 
Pete is an immigrant, at least within what do you call it, the four nations of the United Kingdom or the four states of the United Kingdom, uh, Scottish to English. But that's the point, right? That is exactly the point. None of us is living in the house in which we were born. We've all moved and people do that. It's completely normal. You know, even if we're not international migrants ourselves, within our close family, within our close friendship, we will be part of that. We will we will know people. And, you know, that's that's actually not strange. It's completely normal. We live in cities and cities are built. They're, they're entirely created through migration. Right. And, and as your book dives into it, it's, of course, an essential part of human history. We've been migrating uh, ever since we became human and we started to move out of East Africa and, and upward through the Mideast and, and Europe and, and into Asia. But nevertheless, large-scale migration can bring with it challenges, one of which you, you mentioned already. One of the two that I'd like to ask your response to is that, of course, the world has regions which have local identity, various customs, ways of doing things, ways of speaking, traditions, holidays, etc. And this brings with people, this gives their residents a sense of identity and belonging. And with greater migration, especially migration from more distant cultures, this local identity becomes somewhat diluted. And we can look back at the last hundred years and see this. I live in the Netherlands and the local regions are less distinct than they were a hundred years ago. And that might also be the case as well in England, where, where you're at. Is this an inevitable price that some regions, some individuals must pay for uh, the net benefits that migration brings? Or is there a way that that immigration policy can manage this? So I don't necessarily think that just because something is traditional, it therefore has value. I think we need to look at that, first of all, does it or does it not? Just because we've always done something one way, does it make it uh, necessarily better than other ways? I think what we get is a diversity of ways of doing things, a diversity. We get this enrichment, a diversity of cultures, of food. Thank God. I mean, like if we just only a few countries, <laughs> if Britain didn't have any migration, you know, what would we be eating? Turnip? My God. You know, so so we get this enriched diversity of cultures, behaviors, music, and that's what is so fantastic about migration. We also do get a some degree of survival of the fittest. So some things will fall out of fashion, some things will not. What happens is we also get these incredible fusions. So we get different cultures coming together to give birth to new words, new ways of um, making music, new food styles. I mean, this fusion, it's greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that's really valuable. I don't, I don't like stasis in anything. Stasis is death. You know, I like change. I like these different things. I think while there is capitalism, you know, while there is a market for something, while there is a market for your favorite type of cheese or music or whatever, that will generally continue. When people no longer want that, it will disappear. If it becomes something that is so important to enough people, then that's a question of policy. You know, you fight to keep it. And the way you keep it is through, you know, is through updating it and introducing a new population to it. If people are so scared that their current cultures and their current traditions and whatever music or way of life is so undesirable that migrants coming in won't take them up or try them themselves, then what are they trying to save exactly? Why do they want to save it? Whereas if you are convinced that it is great and it is worth keeping, then you need to sell that idea to the migrants. And, and because it is so great, it will continue. You know, we have ridiculous traditions, in my opinion, that go back centuries. We also have novel, new ideas, new flavors of everything, um, which are being invented all the time. And, and it's that melange that is so exciting and so invigorating. So I think we need to not fear change, really. Change, I mean, it can be confronting, but it isn't foisted upon us. We direct the way our cultures go in the countries that we inhabit. You know, we choose what cultures to hold on to and what is valuable. Yes, and 
regardless of what you and I think and the, the, what the economic studies indicate consistently, that immigration can strengthen an economy, especially one in which uh, the, the balance between older and younger people uh, is changing. Independent of that, uh, concern around increased immigration is common. And that with increased immigration comes resistance, if not backlash. So how can policymakers in this context chart a path forward in which they reap the benefits of reasonably large-scale immigration without triggering a type of political backlash, which in a democracy becomes policy, if everything's working right in a democracy, that would actually result in less potentially beneficial immigration. Yeah, well, climate migration is inevitable now. We we are already experiencing it. It will go up. We do need to plan to manage this. And that's up to us. At the moment, what we've done is we've kind of abandoned any other narrative. The conversation around immigration has become really toxic, even in democracies in Western in my country, and this is from the leadership. Actually, if you do surveys of the people, you know, we're not all little pretty Patels. People are actually much more accepting of uh, migration, of migrants. They're much more understanding of refugees. They're much less racist, actually, um, than our leaders would give us credit for. But we have seen a rise in populism, in populist governments around the world. We've also seen a rise in far-right narratives and far-right parties. What's going on in Italy right now is really scary. And I think there has been a disgraceful abandonment of this whole topic by the centre and left wing um, of parties across Europe. Even coalition parties have really allowed that narrative They've kind of bought into the idea that we are all very prejudiced against migrants. And, you know, when you are being sold that constantly by the leadership, then you can start to believe that. And the other leaders are also starting to believe that to a certain extent. Well, that's very poisonous. And what we need is we need leadership with a real vision and a strategy for actually managing this inevitable migration. You know, people are coming. So it's up to the leadership to develop a much more inclusive narrative, a much more pragmatic, evidence-based narrative around, you know, what this could mean for our economies, how we manage it. It will take investment. Absolutely. It's, it needs to be led by progressive policy. And there needs to be a lot more dialogue. This anti-migrant sentiment and misinformation needs to be countered and it needs to be countered from the top. Ignoring it or um, or just agreeing with it, you know, is not the way forward. I just I still remember when Gordon Brown got absolutely hauled over the coals for for calling a bigot a bigot, basically. And meanwhile, right now, our leadership is coming out with all sorts of absolutely disgraceful statements and policies which are not being challenged at all. And it's actually quite frightening because it's skewing this whole dialogue in a direction which is which is not a fair reflection at all of what people are you know migration is not a security issue really it really isn't it's an economic issue and it needs to be handled like that it will take investment and it will take clever policy to make sure that um that societies that can feel left behind have got the facilities, which at the moment they don't have. The government is not at the moment investing properly in the populations they have. We need an absolute paradigm shift. This is a really big change that needs to happen because we've allowed things to degrade to such an extent. The most obvious cynical tool that populist leaders use in order to um, build a kind of artificial support for themselves is to other strangers, to other migrants, refugees, very poor people, the unemployed, to build an us and them narrative, which then binds people behind them because they feel challenged by this sort of threat. These people are not threatening you in any way. And there hasn't been an appropriate response on the other side. We're not hearing that. I mean, we've had this disaster of Brexit. And so to not rock the boat, perhaps, the uh, left-wing parties, well, Labour for sure, has just allowed a lot of the narrative to kind of go unchallenged all the way through for fear of upsetting Brexiter support. Well, that's not good enough. Well, however you feel about Brexit, 
you know, the issue of migration is not, we're not being threatened at all by current levels of migration, not at all. And um, we have legal obligation, actually, in treaties that we've signed to take in people, um, asylum seekers, which we're not doing, and to treat them with respect and dignity. So we're not doing that yet. But we also need to plan ahead for what is coming. It's inevitable now. So I guess one strand of the argument around the Brexit vote was that in the run up in the decades preceding, there'd been a consensus among the leaders of both parties that large scale immigration was fine. And Brexit, it's argued, was a reaction against that, that the people really were concerned about the level of immigration, though you think it's not particularly large or impactful. It's argued that the people who voted for Brexit thought that it was. Yeah, but the reason why is, again, because of very poor policy. There wasn't investment. You know, it was where people were placed. It was the way the investment worked in various towns and cities that had been left behind by post-industrial economies that had sort of been left behind. If you look at where people were more included in society, because there's just either so much migration or it was a different pattern, people people didn't vote like that. If you look at actually the cities, people are much more pro-immigration than in the places where there were no migrants, if you break it down. Yeah. Another thought on this, I mean, I, I guess you, you talk about Canada potentially tripling its population by 2100. Do you think... Labour could stand on the prospect of doubling the UK's population by 2100 and and, and laying out a plan for how to manage that well? Or would that be just too risky politically? It seems this would be, there'd be worries that getting this past the electorate would be quite challenging, these kind of grand scale, large scale immigration plans. Well, yeah, Canada is its active policy and it's the people are behind it. But they've, you know, they haven't just come out of nowhere and and just sort of foisted this on. This has been a built up uh, discussion over decades. What's happened in the, in Britain is we've we've kind of retreated. We've gone quite far back. So yes, I mean, I think that Britain does need to start talking about this, and Labour does need to start talking about this. They need to start talking about all sorts of things. At the moment, the for various reasons, the narrative on many cultural and political issues has been completely driven by well, the Tory Party interests, and there hasn't been this opposition narrative recently. I mean, I don't want to get into like a whole political discussion about this, but yes, essentially. We need to start putting in the groundwork for building up to that situation where people are comfortable to go ahead with that. I mean, you get the sense that pretty much everybody, every Labour MP is certainly anti-Brexit, especially as we can see what's happened. But then if you look at the policy, you don't hear any of that or see any of that. And this dichotomy is not helpful for anybody. I, I think we need to start with reality, with what we actually face, not what we wish we had what we actually face, which is increasing climate breakdown, which is a very, very unequal, impoverished society, which needs huge investment in certain areas, and with part of a global economy where people are going to have to move. And, you know, we need to be pragmatic, not just here, but um, across the world. And the conversations need to start around that. Do you ever hear that? I don't hear that ever from our leaders. I don't hear any of this reality being spoken. And it's absolutely alarming. It really is. In 2022, when like the world has been pretty much on fire, underwater, for the reality of this situation to actually be faced head on and laid out what we need to do over the next few decades, you know, what this will mean in terms of changing our world. You know, we hear the words net zero bandied about, but we don't really hear any reality about what that means in terms of how we, how much we're going to have to invest, where we're going to have to invest, what sort of changes will have to take place. Until we actually face this, how can you expect the electorate, how can you expect normal people who are busy with their own lives to have any inkling of what is required and you know how they should think about their future? Because this is not being talked about on the, the scale of transformation this century is not being talked about at all and what our choices are. So as a result, we just go from one disaster to another and just react to it by which time, of course, it's happened and it's too late to do anything about. But we do actually have choices. The future isn't written yet. It is an open book. We can decide this future. If we're not going to have mass migration, well, then we need to take the temperature down to stop that happening. And that involves other techniques, technologies, and we need to start talking about that. We're not talking about any of these things. 
So, you know, we do have choices, but if we don't know about them and we don't make them, we will soon not have choices. I guess the other side of this, obviously, I think economically on the national scale, it does make sense that if a population is aging and the working age population is shrinking while the aging part is growing, you've got a challenge. Japan is the most advanced, as far as I know, in terms of that problem. And yet they don't seem to be increasing their immigration very much. Well, that's actually, yeah, that's actually changed recently. So they they did try and go down the robot citizenship scheme idea for quite a while, rather mystifyingly, because they are so incredibly xenophobic about um, immigration. They decided to do that. Fair enough. A useful experiment, but one that is ultimately not going to work. You know, you can't actually replace people, a workforce with robots. You can, you know, in certain areas undoubtedly they will, but they are also going to rely on immigration. And they've realised that. And they've, in the last few years, have actually massively relaxed their incredibly strict immigration and citizenship criteria to start allowing people to become Japanese citizens who weren't born there, which is unprecedented. So even Japan is realising that. Britain has only survived through immigration you know, its population would be a lot lower. We, you know, we do actually have um, a lot of immigrants and that's been great. And of course, as it becomes less desirable to stay here, people will leave and we face shortages in sectors from hospitality to farm workers. Another population shift um, you talk about in the book is towards cities, urbanization. So I think at the moment, around 55% of the population of the world lives in cities. And that's projected to rise substantially over the coming decades to maybe around 70% by 2050, according to the World Bank. I think in some in some environmentalist view, cities are poisonous, polluting, they're not good for the environment. So is that shift towards cities a good thing for the fight against climate change or is it a is it a bad thing? Well, it is definitely a good thing because it concentrates people on smaller amounts of land, which then allow greater amounts of the rural economy to rewild and restore biodiversity, rid of pollution. At the moment, yes, our cities are horrible and polluting, but as part of the enormous transformation that we are going to make over the coming decades, we have to completely transform that. You know, one of the benefits of getting rid of fossil fuels and fossil fuel combustion generally for energy, apart from the global temperature rise, is that we also eliminate a lot of other pollutants come with burning fossil fuels, which are hazardous for health and for for the rest of the environment as well. So um, there's many, many benefits to that. But also, you know, we're going to be transforming the way we build our houses, what we're going to build, our all of our infrastructure. We're moving away from concrete and steel soon because how much carbon is used in its production to alternative materials, everything from cross-laminated, cross-laminated timbers to, um, to, you know, other uh, novel building materials. And all of this, this shift to a different way of living, you know, our cities don't have to be horribly polluted at all. They don't have to be very, very energy intensive. As we concentrate more people, as we increase them, they will be more energy intensive, but that energy doesn't have to come in a polluting way. And we can design heat extraction at outputs that is then recycled and used in other ways. And that's the same for our water, for our infrastructure will start powering us and through solar panels or other sort of active membranes and so on um, in the design itself. So everything will start working harder. And ideally, instead of just sort of growing up organically over centuries, as our cities mainly have, they will be much more designed so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. And we build, you know, socially sustainable and environmentally sustainable places to live on the planet. Can you give an example of something that a city is doing right somewhere in the world as as it prepares for climate change? Oh, yeah, there's, there's been all sorts of transformations just in the last five, 10 years. China has got this huge program of sponge cities, which are cities that are built with the recognition that now we're entering an era of sudden deluge followed by drought, followed by sudden deluge. You know, instead of the gradual drizzle that we all experience <laughs> in the Northern Hemisphere, it's, it's becoming much more intense rainfall. 
So these sponge cities have various design features that soak up water, that stop it from just sliding off tarmac and concrete surfaces into stored reservoirs that produce sort of lush, biodiverse foliage around. And, and that water can be used and, re- and recycled. Um, it's much more appropriate for the, the climate that we, we now experience. Other cities, like a lot of Spain, um, they've moved away from car-centric cities. So they're they're much more designed around um, cycling and pedestrians. And a lot of former roads have been sealed to cars. And, you know, they're either taken over by people in sort of a a more community orientated public spaces that can be used like that, or they um, become uh, cycle lanes and canals to, again, store water and provide cooling and like that sort of passive cooling water water is really good for that roof gardens are everywhere people are painting roofs white we we are seeing a shift i mean i think it's much too slow but we are gradually seeing things shift to a different way of doing things a different way different ways of living in cities I mean, the dirty car-centric cities that we think are sort of set in stone, I mean, they've only been there for you know a century. The car was only invented in the 20th century. So, I mean, cities have been filthy for longer than that, obviously, but uh, <laughs> in different ways. Another topic that your book describes, another economic sector that will need significant overhaul in the face of climate change and climate-driven migration is food. Where are the opportunities that you see for food systems to respond effectively to a changing climate? Yeah, so food is another hugely important sector that will have to be utterly transformed because um, a lot of the parts of the world that currently produce food will no longer be able to for one reason or other. Already a lot of places you can't work outside after 10am, it's just too hot. So that's obviously a huge problem for um, agricultural workers. And then we have the issues of drought, of floods that wash away soils, huge erosion issues. Agriculture is threatened in a lot of the world's breadbaskets at the moment, really terrifyingly so. So the most important and obvious thing to do is to move generally to a much more plant-based diet because that immediately solves a lot of land use problems. So instead of chopping down forests or using land that that could either be biodiverse or used in another way by people, it's being used to grow crops to feed to livestock. Other land is being used to feed to livestock that then are fed to us. And that's an incredibly inefficient way of giving people calories and giving people protein. There are much, much more efficient ways of doing it. Directly from the plants, very efficient. um, And we will have to modify the plants either through breeding or through the choice of crop that we use, the choice of cereal for this new world this new Anthropocene that we're living in of uncertain climate, of uh, you know hotter temperatures, more drought. Higher carbon dioxide will help, actually, with a lot of growth. And in some areas in the far north, they're getting expanded growing seasons already. In fact, if you look from space, you can already see the greening of the Arctic. But we will have to also look at other what, what is currently novel forms of food. So either insect protein, which can be ground into our food, or algae protein from bacteria feedstocks as well. And we'll have to look at plants that can be grown in salty water. So, so there are various seaweeds that we can eat and sort of sea grasses as well that produce seeds that we can use in different ways. So, so we are going to have to completely change what we eat and how we produce that. And um, that will be a challenge, but I think it's one that we can actually meet if we also cut down the amount of food we waste, and we can do that in various ways as well, because we um, currently waste nearly, you know, more than a quarter of the food that we produce is wasted either in the rich world, sort of post-production or in the poor world before production, because it rots and there, there aren't enough places to store it. So these are things that we have the capability, we just need to do it. And I say just, obviously, none of this is easy. This is going to be a very, very challenging century of upheaval, but we do need to move to uh, to a different food system. So I must ask, have you tried insect protein? Yes, yes. I've eaten insects in Asia quite a bit. I think they're delicious. <laughs> As like a whole insect or this like processed yeah, well, mainly mainly crickets, actually. Just um, they're often roasted at the side of the road as a sort of snack. 
and they just taste like any other crustacean, like a prawn, roasted prawn. So they kind of, they just taste of sort of crunchy, fatty, and they, they taste of the sauce they're in more than the, you can't really, they don't have a strong flavor to me. And also I've had like little different types of sort of mealworms and other grubs and stuff, all cooked. So I don't know what they taste like raw. But I'm, I don't find, I'm not particularly squeamish about that. I mean, I think if you eat meat of some kind, there are a lot worse things. There was a particularly unpleasant sort of soup, asshole soup, I called it in Laos, that I was presented with once. It was just had like little anuses in it or something. I think that's what they were. That was disgusting. I didn't eat that. Anyway. <laughs> On a slightly more forward-looking topic, I think you mentioned it briefly in your book, a topic that fascinates me on the food front is uh, synthetic meat. Did you dive into the prospect of what's sometimes called lab-grown meat that is basically more or less real meat that doesn't come from an animal but can be grown from some sort of a stem cell on a substrate? Yeah, well, that's one option. I think we'll get better at doing that um, in the future. So that would be the same as eating a steak, you know, because it's basically animals. I mean, it is a steak, but grown in a factory, so it doesn't harm the cow. It doesn't, you know, it's it's not cruel to the animal in any way. I mean, at the moment, it takes enormous amounts of resources to grow anything like that. And I think that's completely unnecessary. And apart from the animal cruelty perspective, you know, which is great, I think there are much better ways of getting our protein. But yes, I think those definitely will be on offer. I just think they'll, they'll be quite expensive and not in the reach of most ordinary people. I think they're more likely to have the many now very realistic tasting fake meats, actually, if they want to have that meat experience. So let's shift the conversation a bit from the specific local uh, or sector specific responses to climate change and sort of thinking more big picture. What can global society do to prevent and respond to climate change? One issue that you address in your book, one proposal, is the role of economic growth in climate change. What's the relationship there? And that we sometimes hear some environmentalists say economic growth is the problem. This produces economic activity that inevitably causes, you know, emits greenhouse gases and causes net suffering in the world. And we need to contract the global economy through planned degrowth, whereas other environmentalists bring up diversity objections to that, the ethical argument around the need for economic development in poorer regions, and the prospect for a wealthier world that is more able to confront environmental challenges through development. What was your response to that discourse within environmentalism? Well, I mean, it's true that economic growth today has been responsible for vastly more um, emissions, vastly more pollution, vastly more of everything, actually. And it's, it's, it's caused a lot of brilliant stuff, like we live longer, healthier, happier with enough food and everything. And that's a result of economic growth. But it has also caused you know, resource depletion, biodiversity loss, pollution, hotter temperatures, climate change, inequality, all sorts of things. And the answer to that is, again, that there is there is a middle ground, right? And that's regulation. So what, what has happened in a lot of places, most places, is that the market has just gone ahead to do whatever it wants and regulations have been cut more and more. So we have this increase in inequality, increase in pollution. Better regulations to make sure that growth is decoupled from carbon emissions, as is already happening actually in a few economies now. Economic growth is already decoupled from pollution, from carbon emissions. And that's great. And that's something we need to go ahead with much more strongly. Without economic growth, we don't get the other good things, which is standard of living, healthiness, enough food, happiness, hope in any way. So we have to have growth. And economic growth, it's measured as the growth in the quantity or quality of the economy of production. And so if you remember the quality, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to just produce more stuff. You know, economic growth is, for example, creating a malaria vaccine that can be rolled out because then, you know, less of your economy, less of your workforce, less of the labor force is dying of malaria. So that's an increase in economic growth. It's not polluting, though. It's not causing more carbon emissions. So how do we measure economic growth? What does economic growth really mean? And how do we um, make sure that economic 
growth is environmentally and socially sustainable? Well, these are all policy questions and it is to do with policy and to do with uh, regulation. And it's essential. You know, if you consider that a large part of the world doesn't have clean water, access to clean water, doesn't have, you know, is suffering from malnutrition of one sort or another, doesn't have access to energy yet, let alone clean energy. Got a long way to go. We've got a lot of economic growth to go till we get people living decent, dignified lives. Well, another big picture area that you take on are some novel climate policy options. So you call not just for decarbonizing the economy, but also removing carbon from the atmosphere. What do you see as the opportunities and uh, challenges for carbon dioxide removal? Yeah, so we, we have to get to net zero, but then we have to cut below that because you know the temperature is already high. And by the time we get to net zero, we, we will have gone higher. So we need to cut below that. So, you know, we rely on photosynthesis to do our carbon dioxide removal mainly um, through trees, photosynthetic algae in the oceans and so on. That's great as we reduce our forests and, you know, they they burn away or drought kills them or whatever. We're, we're reducing our ability to do that. And a lot of forests are on tipping points to become actually net emitters of carbon rather than storers of carbon. So that's something to bear in mind. Also, photosynthesis is quite inefficient. I mean, it's great for trees, but trees don't run around and hunt, for example, because they just don't have the concentration of energy to do that. And we're on quite a tight timescale. So we need to increase that. We need to increase that carbon dioxide removal. And there's various ways of doing that. We can enhance that photosynthetic activity. There is tree planting with caveats that um, a lot of it is being done in inappropriate places or double counted by various people. So, and the trees aren't necessarily being looked after to the length of time it takes them to actually withdraw enough carbon. And we're talking decades. Uh, we can also do that in the ocean by um, increasing the nutrients in the ocean. And that happens naturally when uh, Saharan dust containing iron gets blown into, for example, the Southern Ocean, and that creates a feedstock for photosynthetic. There's a, there's a whole process, actually, of an eco, a marine ecosystem, which helps lock that carbon down. So we could increase that. Um, and I think we should start experimenting in ways of doing that through adding iron to the ocean, to fertilising that. We don't have any uh, regulations over fertilising photosynthetic plants that grow on land. So I'm not sure why it's such a problem to do it in the ocean, but it is. I also think that we should enhance the natural process again of weathering, which is when uh, rocks react with the sort of damp, drizzly air to to bind with with the carbon dioxide in the air, and that can then get that molecule gets washed down through the water system, and and again can be stored in sediments. And so, crushing up rocks is quite energy intensive which is one of the reasons it hasn't been done a lot of. But if you look at the um, possibilities from just industrial mining, the amount of tailings, a lot of that rock is actually appropriate for this. It can be spread on fields where it um, enhances crop production in various ways, um, or it could be spread on shorelines where it would have the double benefit, I reckon, of reducing acidification in that sort of local area, which could be really handy for uh, reef building organisms. Yeah. So um, other options I think we need to look at is uh, reducing the amount of heat that actually hits the earth um, at all, which is through reflectivity. So spraying the uh, stratosphere, the top levels of the atmosphere with sulfate particles, um, which would reflect back that heat. And we could do that enough to maintain temperatures at a livable level. So fewer people would have to migrate. And while we're undergoing this huge decarbonisation transition, this huge transition to a more sustainable lifestyle, to different food production, to different energy production, all of that would be much, much easier were we not also dealing with um, extreme conditions, catastrophic events that cause um, horrific deaths across regions. People could stay a lot longer where they are. Crops would last a lot longer. You know, crop farming in certain regions would, would be able to remain there a lot longer. And then ideally, we would, by the end of the century, have reached a point where we can gradually reduce the amount of sulfates that we use in the atmosphere and perhaps even reduce them to zero. So it wouldn't take much of a concentration of sulfates. They would have to be sprayed continually, annually or biannually. 
but it's a lot less than the amount of sulfates that currently release through, say, shipping pollution um, in the lower atmosphere, where it's an absolute health hazard. So um, I think that should be tried as well. I mean, I, I really think we need to try all of these things. So that I think that, well, that last one I should say is both of our speciality. That's our research topic is um, stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. Yeah, so I hope I haven't got all of that wrong. No, no, that, that, that's fine. I, I guess I was, I was just a little surprised because I think most many people don't like the sound of this idea. And I think a lot of environmentalists have a very strong reaction against it. So um, what is the logic of, of why you think, I mean, I guess you've kind of laid it out that it has this potential. Why do you think there's such opposition to it? Well, I don't think people know about it. And also, um, we are currently geoengineering our planet. We've been geoengineering it really ever since our species started, but on a large scale, really in the last 60, 70 years, we've been really geoengineering our planet. We've changed the temperature of the atmosphere. We've changed the roots of rivers, you know, where water is stored, erosion potential, the chemicals in our water supply, you know, the nitrate concentration, the uh, sulfate concentration, I guess, as well. We've completely geoengineered our planet and we're carrying on doing that. And people have seen that that has caused um, incredible pollution um, and all sorts of problems. And they, I guess, think that geoengineering in another way would would do the same thing. And, and I think the idea of spraying, even in the upper atmosphere, spraying things in the air, it feels scary because we breathe that air. But we are already, of course, spraying carbon, sulfates, all sorts of aerosols into our atmosphere at the level of our mouths. <laughs> We're breathing all this in at the moment. You know, I think personally that while we have our hand on the thermostat of this globe, you know, we are incredible enough to, even though we've caused this huge mess, we are capable of solving it. And while we have that ability to not even talk about or consider turning that temperature down to um, survivable levels is unconscionable. I think it's our responsibility to have these discussions. And as I say, you know, the future is unwritten. It is our choice. We either have this catastrophic rise in temperature where millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people have to move there are huge numbers of deaths, cities, civilizations are completely destroyed, or we turn the temperature down and we try something out. I mean, we have all these choices. None of them come without challenges. Everything is challenging. We haven't even tried this on a large scale, so we don't really know. We have a much better idea of this than many other possibilities. But I think, you know, when we look at predictions where people are sort of, you know, keep 1.5 alive, or, you know, as we heard over COP, the last COP26 last year, or let's keep below two degrees. I mean, that's great. Obviously, that would be much more livable for all of us. I don't know any climate scientists who think 1.5 is very likely at the moment. I mean, that's really quite a dream. Um, keeping below two also seems very ambitious. And when we're talking about 1.5, we're not talking about, you know, over the next 80 years kind of slowly creeping up. We're talking about a big overshoot and then coming down if we're lucky. And all those projections for coming down rely on things like boxes to do carbon capture out of the atmosphere, where carbon dioxide is present in such incredibly low concentrations that this would require enormous amounts of energy. And like the atmosphere is um, quite big. I don't know if you've noticed, there's quite a lot of air out there. So I, I think we should definitely try this. I don't think we should rule anything out at all. But I also think we need to be pragmatic and realistic and look at actually what could make a difference. And we need social tools. We do need to um, completely transform the way we look at um, people moving to safety across our shared geography. Absolutely. We need social tools. We also need to use our technological tools. We can't afford to not use anything. And if we have the ability to make things more bearable with really minimal side effects compared to what we are already experiencing, and just to remind you, like a third of Pakistan is currently underwater, I don't really buy the argument that we shouldn't even talk about it. I think we absolutely have a responsibility to talk about it. What are your sources of optimism these days? What gives you hope for a better future? Well, I am hopeful because I see that actually change is happening. If you said to me 10 years ago, wind farms and uh, solar farms will become much more prolific and actually cheaper and more reliable at producing energy than fossil fuel power station, 
I wouldn't have believed you. I'd have said, well, that's that's really nice, you know, in a, in an ideal world, but um, that's not going to happen for a long time. It's happened a lot faster. You know, we, we do reach these kind of social tipping points as well as these kind of economic tipping points where, you know, it just doesn't become worth investing in a new car plant for, um, for combustion engines. Like no one's doing that now because it's not going to work. So then those cars become cheaper. We see um, roads converting much more into, you know, cycle lanes being built everywhere. The normalization of recycling of um, this agreement globally among leaders that we do have a problem, that the problem is caused by us and uh, we need to cut our carbon emissions. All of this gives me hope. But also talking to younger generations for whom this, obviously, this is going to be their lives. This is the work of their lives, uh, making this transformation. They they really understand what they're facing, I think, in a way that, that older people don't. They really care about producing um, a better world. I'm not just talking about the sort of heroes of our time, the sort of Jeanne d'Arc of our time, like Greta Thunberg and some of the others. I'm, I'm talking about just kids at my kids' school, you know, who who actually have conversations about this. Well, when I was in the playground, when I was their age, I wasn't talking about this, not at all. So I think the paradigm has shifted among the age group, but it needs to shift among the leaders now. Our guest today has been Gaia Vince. She is the author most recently of Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. Gaia, thank you for joining us on Challenging Climate. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's pay slash challenging climate.